All right, are we ready to start? Is everybody, um, who here is actually connected to wireless? Wow, I mean, you're actually on, like you got through all the little steps, okay. So, if you're not on, let me just tell you how you, how you get on, because it will be helpful for some of the activities. You go to a, you connect to WVM wireless in your, in your list of networks that appear. And then you try to go to a web page, and you're prompted to sign up um, as a guest or something. And so what is it? Follow the instructions to log on as a guest. When you sign up, it's going to ask for your name, email, and uh, phone. But I didn't get any kind of text to my phone. So if you have a, a phone, like a smartphone, that just gets email regularly, leave that mobile field blank, and it will send the, the temporary password to your email. So anyway, that's what fixed mine. So if you can figure that out, great. If not, um, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> if not, um, hopefully maybe you have another solution. Maybe your phone has a hotspot or something. All right, are we ready to get started? <laughs> Hi. All right, I'm, my name is Tom Johnson, and uh, I'm excited to give this API workshop. Um, there's a survey that I thought was really interesting, uh, done by Programmable Web a few years, maybe, maybe two years ago, um, where they, they surveyed about 250 developers. And they said, what are the most important factors in an API? And this is, this is how they rated it. Complete and accurate documentation rated on the very top, above anything else. Um, which I thought was amazing. And the, the guy who, who headed this survey has you know, taken these results and, and a lot of times uh, in presentations that he gives, he emphasizes the importance of documentation. He says the number one reason why developers hate your API is because the documentation sucks. <laughs> so when I saw this survey, I was really excited because I thought you know, this, is, this is a ripe opportunity for technical writers to provide a really valuable asset to um, the API world. But the API world is vastly different. It's like looking into Mars. The landscape is completely different from anything that um, I had kind of been uh, accustomed to in the regular tech comm world. The tools are different, the language and terminology is different, the audience is different. And when I started doing some API documentation, I felt lost. Um, so there's, there's a whole new world to navigate. Yeah? Um, for that survey, do you have that link available? Yeah. And by the way, um, all, my, all my slides and some workshop files are freely available. If you go to, you probably can't see this, but bit.ly slash Tom API Workshop. I did send this link as an email, and I'll post it on my blog too, at I'dRatherBeWriting.com. Anyway, you should be able to get everything that way, uh, assuming that it doesn't crash the whole like wireless network when people download this. So bit.ly bit, bit slash Tom API Network, or Tom API Workshop. All right, so um, in addition to all this you know, difficult terminology and, and you know, new processes and, and different tools. A lot of times in job opportunities, people are, people are expecting high quality results. Uh, this is a job opportunity for 
uh, somebody to do tech writing uh, for a firm in Palo Alto, and they say the client wants to find somebody who will emulate Dropbox's developer documentation. What does Dropbox's do documentation look like? It looks fairly minimal. I mean, it's, it's well designed. It's nothing super exciting. At the same time, it's uh, quite slick. Once you sign in and you see the different things, it's very well, it's very well done. Um, and the reason why, why docs are so important to the API experience is because in contrast to a regular software application, Docs are the interface for APIs. There's no, there's no like list of buttons and menus that people select from. It's the actual documentation that tells them the endpoints that are available. So the, 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 if you want to have your API look cool and you want to have a good looking interface, so to speak, you need to have sexy looking documentation, cool looking docs, right? So this, this place has added uh, strain on the technical writer because now we're being asked to not only navigate the development world, but to be front-end designers to create high-quality looking uh, professional websites. So I, I felt like there was a need for a lot more information and I started to um, uh, try to just write more articles and there's a whole issue dedicated to Intercom that I was, uh, had the opportunity to guest host and, we, and it was all about API documentation. So this is an area where I think in our techcom world, we, we have lots of opportunity to explore and to navigate. So slides and everything are gonna be, well, actually I should just hit, I have a draft post with them, but it's basically the same link. They're gonna be freely available on idratherbewriting.com, that's my blog. And um, I'm also recording it, so you can go back. I know that sometimes tech things are hard to get in the moment, but you wanna go back and you wanna like review it. I've got some code samples, some activities. I've actually got enough material, material here for like four hours, so I don't really know how um, we want to proceed. I, I, like, I like to go uh, with the flow, so to speak, and, and just um, emphasize what people are interested in. Oh, now I'm getting the cell phone text message. Okay. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> yeah, only... All right, a little bit about me. I started doing API SDK documentation just a couple of years ago. Uh, so a disclaimer, there are a lot of things I simply do not know, and I'm not gonna pretend to be cooler than I am. I'm not a former programmer. I have an English major, creative writing background, uh, and I love to uh, blog and, and do podcasts and so forth. I like to play with code and publishing platforms, um, but a lot of people in the API doc space are actually former developers who were you know, years doing some kind of Java programming and then they decide to turn into tech writing. That's not me. And I think that's, that may be encouraging for some of you who have similar humanities backgrounds. Um, all right, now I do have some activities. This is a workshop. Uh, so this is helpful for you to have installed. And I did send out some um, information a few days ago. If you don't, that's okay. But Eclipse, Chrome, some extensions for Chrome that display JSON better, uh, maybe a text editor, Git. If you don't have these, don't worry about it. But as we go through the, um, some of the activities, you might, you might think, oh, I should have that. I'm sorry, I have to make an announcement. A lot of people park in staff parking over, to the, over here. And if you park in staff parking, we can't guarantee you won't be towed. We can't get a hold of campus police. And so we need you to move your cars. I'm really sorry. 
sorry about that. Um, people didn't follow the registration destination signs to the parking lot. I never saw them. Everything else is fine and free. Is it the cover of the cover? Maybe we can take an opportunity to try and get back on that. If it doesn't say staff in the slot, you would probably be all right. So you're all right. If we're parked back there, it's all free. Yeah, all this area over here behind us is fine and free. All right, so how many people's cars are being towed? How many people <laughs> we have? I have no idea what she's referring to when she says over here or over there. I know. I, my wife dropped me off, so I don't really know. You sure your car is No, no, no. My wife dropped me off. So, look, I'm really sorry. Should we wait for the people? Should we just keep going? Okay, why don't we take, ah, man. Okay. Oh, no, just a small interruption. <laughs> Hold up, wait, sorry, what? You were asking something first. Yeah, yeah, we might, we, Okay, all right, we'll give it a few minutes. Um, so here's an exercise. I wasn't really planning to do this, so this might be fun. When you need to get source files from developers, uh, a lot of times this applies more for client uh, APIs, like Java APIs and other things. You have to download the source, but you probably see this kind of stuff all over the web regardless. So I decided to put um, the, the activity files up on, oh, nice. Uh, up the activity files up on the web, and let's see if I still have my connection. Yeah, okay. So GitHub is a really popular repository. It's a source control repository. You probably see this for everything because it's, uh, it's free for people to host open source projects on the web and it's open. And you often see a little part over here that says, that, that uh, there we go. You can clone this with HTTPS or Subversion. Clone in desktop, download zip. Do you know what this really refers to? Like, does this mean anything to people? So here's how you do it. You have to have a client called Git on your computer. You copy this little URL here. You open up a terminal. Let me close, uh, open a new guy. You open up a terminal. PWD tells you where you're at. Um, so if I wanted to clone this repository, and essentially I'm copying the repository onto my local machine here. If I wanted to, as long as you have git installed, and you just look for instructions on how to install that, you just do git clone, and you copy that URL that you have right here. And once you do that, it's going to automatically start downloading all those, all those files from there. So now if I were to go into that folder and look at the contents, you see all, all of them listed there. So this is how developers get, get files. So if you're ever working with developers and you say, hey, I, I want to get all the source files so I can edit the content, um, that's how you do it. Yeah? Um, those instructions work for Unix and Mac. What yeah. about PCs? 
Yeah, sorry. Um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of ignorant with the PC commands, but I think you can open a, a, a terminal prompt or a command prompt and do something very similar. Anyway, uh, but go ahead and download the, the files. If you do, so you don't have to do it that way. That's why I said, you know, recommend it if you have Git. Great, you could walk through that. But, uh, but if, if I wanted to go into that, by the way, let me, let me show you. So if I go into my user directory and I look for API workshop, you can see I've got all the same files here that are, that are right here. Now the beauty of this, and this is what is one of the better sort of uh, inventions, so to speak, of the last 20, whenever source control was invented. Let's say that, that I update a file. So I go into my computer and I upload a file here. And you want to get the latest stuff. Well, you d instead of having to go back to this website, all you're going to do is come back to your terminal. You know, as long as you're in that folder, you just, you just go git pull. And it gets the latest stuff. See, it says already up to date. So this is how developers work. They're all, they, they have like a central code repository. And they just pull from it. And they push up to it. And of course, they can figure out how they merge things and all. Um, it's built into the, the git. It's going to prompt people if they're overriding and how, how they want to ha handle merges. But, but um, this sort of workflow, uh, you, you could use for tech docs. You could use for your, your markdown files, your data files. You don't need a CMS and so forth um, if you want to go lightweight. Anyway, go ahead and uh, let me just tell you what's in here. There's some sample calls and some, um, some, uh, a sample Java project and a couple of sample specs for automated documentation. All right, I think the car people, uh, we're just going to have to move. Yeah? Okay. You, you can't connect to the wireless network? Is that? Well, I did, but I've got a username and I can't type into my head. I've got a Mac and I can't type into my head. But, but you can go online? Oh, you can go online. So I am online. And this is what I get. And I get. Uh, is, that, would that, is that expected, maybe? Oh, you did it all right. Um, I don't know. You know, I may not have. There may have been something I didn't set up right. I'm not sure. I, I thought I did it right. But maybe, maybe I have permissions set wrong. At any rate, just copy the zip files, and, and they're there. This, this is also a link to the zip files and everything. It's got the activity files and slides in it. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Who who knows how to turn out the lights in the front? Where? Okay. Whoa. Who's the motorcycle? Oh, there we go. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the people who just went out to the car, I did a little brief activity with Git. And if you can't get Git to work, I may not have the permission set right. So don't worry about it. Just copy the, you can get all the files this way. All right. So. What? Yeah. So here's the deal. Uh, just briefly on the wireless. If you can't connect, don't put your mobile number in there. Just put your email and look for the password that gets generated to you via email. That's the instructions I have right there. Oh, well, yeah. you could try your phone. It took like five minutes for my text message to arrive. But. So either way, sorry. 
Okay. Um, here's, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know why they have special security on the wireless. It's kind of annoying. Here's our tentative outline for today. First, we're going to just have a general introduction to API docs. We're going to deep dive into REST APIs, deep dive into code samples, and then deep dive into Java and Javadoc. And I don't know if we'll have time to go through all this stuff, particularly with Java, but the slides are there, and I, we can jump into it as much as possible. Oh, sorry. Uh, good catch. I'll fix it. Well, initially, to be honest, I used to have the Java one third, and then I was like, this, is a, this section is just boring. I want to do the code samples. So anyway. Uh, yeah, I guess not. I don't know. I thought I was. Uh, either way, either way. Just something so that when you when you get a, a, a response, it, it looks readable. JSON formatter or the other one. There's also another uh, advanced REST client extension that's probably better anyway. Um, okay. If you have questions at any time, feel free to ask them. This is, I mean, this is part of an unconference. It's not really meant to be a top-down lecture kind of thing. So I'm happy to uh, answer questions at any time. Does anybody have any really burning questions? I'm just curious. What are you, what are you hoping to learn from this guy? Can you look up every so often because I see hands go up and you're busy either on the screen or <laughs> Yeah, I will, I will. Tell people to shout. But don't ask me more wireless questions because I can't solve them. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great question. The question is, is API documentation right for me? Is it something that I'm interested in, that I would be a good fit? That kind of question. How many have a similar question? Okay. <clears throat> that, that, that is a question that I don't know if I answer it at, uh, directly. But for me, that has been a major question. Is API doc the right way to go? Um, and I think there are different kind of different kinds of APIs that may be better fits. The REST APIs I think are a really good solid fit for technical writers. The more technical APIs like Java APIs I think are better fit a better fit for former programmers. I'm not saying a technical writer can't do both. I'm just saying in my experience, if you get more and more code heavy, you really have to have more and more of a technical background to feel productive and to excel. But uh, the REST API stuff is, I think, is um, really doable without being technical um, too much, without having too much of a technical background. So let's just start and give some basics about APIs. Um, it stands for Application Programming Interface, um, and it's essentially a cog between two systems that allows them to interact, kind of like this little wheel here. You have one system here and another system here, and the API allows them to talk to each other, communicate, um, do things. Now, there are lots of different kinds of APIs, uh, but the REST APIs are probably the most popular right now. But there are hardware APIs. People are always reminding me that I, I'm ignoring hardware and only paying attention to software. So I'm calling that out here. There's hardware APIs. There's um, 
There's, there's just libraries and so forth of code that are similar to APIs. But uh, there's also a term that you'll probably hear called SDK. So an SDK is kind of like a, a, a tool that helps people work with an API. I used to work at a company called Badgeville. We had a REST API. And this company did gamification. So uh, if you want to uh, give users points and special rewards and little missions that they go on on your website, we had all kinds of little um, ways to do that. So in order to interact with this API, we also had a JavaScript SDK so that people could, could get the, the points for a player or could get the rewards for a player using a familiar JavaScript format rather than just a REST API call. And I'll get into that a little bit more later, but basically that's a, what, how an SDK differs. It's kind of a tool that helps you implement the API. Um, now, there's two kind of main categories of APIs that we want to be aware of. First, and, and this is the more traditional one, is uh, what I call a platform API. And this refers to Java APIs, C++ APIs, Python APIs, any kind of um, language-specific API. And you generate the documentation, by and large, the reference documentation, through an auto-doc format. Uh, within the actual code, you put special little syntax, uh, these, little, these little asterisks and the little at symbol, and out pops some generated reference documentation. This is a Java doc file. So this is, this is really commonly used in Java development shops. And in order to write this kind of documentation, you need to work in the source code. Now, um, one thing I want to emphasize is this, this only applies to the reference documentation. If you're writing tutorials and programmer guides, you're not doing that within the source usually. Um, and Doxygen is another document generator. These are kind of like, you know, with RoboHelp or Flare, you, you have a, a set of files and you hit compile, build, whatever, generate. And it gathers things up and it spits them out. In the same way, they have this kind of same document generator for, for APIs. Um, this is a great example of source-generated docs. This is from Dropbox's site. And if you go through and check out like, these different libraries, they're all generated with different document generators for that language. So Python has a, I think it's called PyDocs or something. Uh, Ruby has one, PHP, Java. And they're, they have different looks and feels to the outputs, but they're, they're document generator solutions. Now there's a lot of pros to the in-source documentation. The main pro is uh, uh, the, the idea that you avoid documentation drift. You know, if programmers are writing in code and they have the ability to make comments about what the class is or what the method does right there, um, uh, you're going to have less, it's going to be less likely that the documentation ve veers from what the code is. Additionally, a lot of these, these auto document generators will pull out parameters or they'll automatically grab different parts of uh, the API and, and put them in the documentation. So, there are some, some kinds of approaches that are completely automatic. You don't even need a writer. It just is going to automatically pull out, oh, these are the arguments, these are the data types, and so forth. Um, the problem with platform APIs, at least this is kind of the gist I'm getting, is that today languages keep proliferating, right? You, you've got new languages popping up all the time. And it's hard for developers to really provide 
an API specific to everybody's language that they need. At my current job, um, we have a .NET API, a C++ API, uh, a Java API, and every release, uh, they have to test all the different calls in all the different languages and troubleshoot them, and you have to have developers who are, who are proficient across languages. It's really a kind of bigger scope. It's, you know, it's the difference between having your docs just in English versus having them in English and Japanese and Portuguese and some other languages. Um, additionally, with platform APIs, the way, that, the way that clients get them is they basically download the files and include them into their projects. So once you have a developer who has downloaded, say, a Java API, compiled their Java app, deployed it, and you have an update because you have some bug that you fixed or some new feature, you have to try to convince them to go through their whole deployment process again to get your update. It's really a pain. So there are kind of uh, some pros and cons. Um, sorry, the pros, I didn't even get to that. <laughs> the, like the pros are that platform APIs, when you download the code locally and put it on your, on your computer, it's secure, it's faster, which is huge. And um, uh, people get it right in their own language. They don't have to try to you know, mess with REST API calls. All right, so this is just a little disclaimer. Don't focus entirely on the reference material. There's also a whole world of tutorials that are probably more applicable, and we'll get into that more with the code samples part. Okay, so this is another um, survey from Programmable Web. This shows the growth in APIs since 2005. So uh, these are web APIs, sorry. So it, this is in contrast to all the platform APIs that, that, that you download and, and include in your projects. Web APIs, they live on the web, okay? So that when people talk about REST APIs and web APIs are the same thing, they're not something that people are, are downloading and including in their projects. They're making a call. And you can see that they're super popular. They have risen um, exponentially in the last like five years. Uh, th this programmableweb.com site is pretty amazing. They have a directory of all these web APIs and there are 12,000 of them. And if you sign up to their, to their email list or whatever, you can see that like every week about a dozen new APIs spring up. And I see that and think, wow, you know, is there documentation for all these? And wh what do they look like? And they, there is, of course, documentation. Otherwise, people wouldn't be able to use it. And it's really interesting because almost every site's documentation is completely unique. Okay, so here's some basics about question, yeah. Does that chart imply that the very first web API, API was created in June of 2005? Uh, that's maybe, maybe uh, yeah, that's what it implies. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's entirely true, but um, yeah, maybe. <clears throat> but anyway, you see the trends. They've, they're growing rapidly. So here's some basics about how REST APIs work. Chuck? If, if programmers did a better job of writing self-documenting code, would they need documentation? Or need uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And let me explain that a little bit more. Um, Here's the, here's the reason, and I'm getting into this a little, little later, but I'll just answer it. The reference documentation that gets auto-generated is kind of equivalent to um, documentation of a software application that just describes tab by tab what everything does, or screen by screen, without really telling a user how to do an actual task. So your actual tasks that people have to do 
involve crossing various endpoints and passing results from one to another and doing certain prerequisites to, in order to get the right information. So the, the programmer usually doesn't know the full scope of users' real tasks. And that's where technical writers come in to kind of show how to actually use the API. Yeah, behind you. Well, he was asking about self-documenting code. But the, oh. You know, the, I think the distinction there is that the person who downloads the API doesn't see the code. The code might be proprietary. proprietary. Uh, so, so this is not actually, you know, isn't like the documentation in the code that says this piece of code does this. It's, it's at the API level. Okay. Yeah, sorry, it's still a little fuzzy. There's a lot of kind of connotations that I hear about self-documenting code. I also hear, I mean, we're going to get into uh, some some like auto doc solutions like Swagger and so forth. Uh, but there's also a, a different kind of connotation people sometimes have with self-documenting code, and that they put a piece of code as a sample, and if people understand the language, they shouldn't have any questions about what it's doing, right? And and um, I think uh, that that is something I want to address in the code samples. Yes. So, is that what self-documenting code is? No, it's different. It's oh, there's there's different. So, self-documenting code could mean two things. Okay, one, at least in my experience, it could mean there's some kind of document generator that automatically extracts all the methods, the classes, all the different parts of it, and puts it into um, some kind of generated documentation you can easily browse to see it. Another example is a simple code sample that a developer thinks is completely clear to somebody who's a programmer and doesn't need explanation. I'm sorry, was the first one Java document? Yeah, it could be. Well, it could be. Yeah, could, could be. Um, Java doc allows you to add a lot of comments to it. But if you didn't add any comments to a Java doc and you generated it, um, it would automatically tell you all the different parameters that are. It actually reads the code and says, oh, there's a parameter here and put it there. But it won't have any description if you don't add one, oh. that kind of thing. All right, so I want to emphasize a little bit, or I want to talk a little bit about REST APIs, because I think this is, this is where the market is hot for technical writers, and it's where the interest is. This is how they work. Essentially, I said they're web APIs. So it uses a web HTTP protocol to make a request. And essentially, you go, you put a, a, a endpoint or URL in your browser, and you get back a bunch of information. So this is an example from Flickr. And here the response is in XML, uh, but you could have it in other languages as well, like JSON. And you add different parameters in your request. So here you have like a basic endpoint, and then you add stuff. Sorry, here's the basic endpoint. Then you add things like your API key and so on. Oh, and this is an example of a different response format. Now here there's a lot of data, so it's kind of unintelligible. But here you can see that I've added uh, a couple of parameters here. I want the format to be JSON, whereas this other one, I didn't have that parameter specified. And so it, it changes what is returned. Um, Excuse me. Yeah. Is there one format that appears to be more popular? I think JSON is really a lot more popular. Than yeah. XML? Yeah. Um, so a major part of, of documenting REST APIs is not only identifying what each endpoint, and when I, when I say endpoint, I'm just referring to basically a URL that returns a specific resource. Um, figuring out 
or describing what the endpoints are, and documenting all the different parameters you can add to that endpoint that change things, that change what's returned. Um, yeah, so there's an example of the parameters. Now, a lot of times when you're document, when you're providing different examples of the calls you can make, you'll use something called curl. Uh, because with a browser, you, you generally just, if you were to pass a URL just in the browser, it's just going to read whatever resource is there. But a lot of times, APIs allow people to update things, delete things, uh, do other kinds of actions. And so you have this, this, um, this language called curl that you can run from your command prompt, and you can pass different methods. These are called HTTP methods in order to actually perform an action on the content. Just be aware of the curl thing. Now, here's the, the interesting thing about REST APIs is, you know how I talked about all the document generator solutions with, Java, with Javadocs and the Doxygen that automatically read the code and spit out a documentation sample? By and large, REST APIs don't really have this sort of uh, commonality with, the, with document generators. You, you, um, this is a quote from Kim, Kim Lane from API Evangelist. She says, the beauty of web APIs is that they can be written in whatever language you like. So rather than having the, the API written in Java, it could be written in MongoDB or something. Um, and as long as somebody sends in that HTTP request and some kind of response comes back, that's all that people need to know. Um, but because they can be written in any language, makes it really hard for people writing document generators to properly parse the stuff in a predictable way. So usually the sites for REST APIs are custom. They're, they're done by hand. Yes? Um, are, what, which one does our um, audience want? Oh, which kind of, they want, they don't care. The audience never cares, right? The audience wants good, clear documentation. I'm gonna go through and talk a little bit later about design trends with API doc sites kind of surveying what developers want. And actually they do, they do have some specific kind of things they want that I, I get kind of, I get excited about um, because there's a lot of um, creative possibilities you can do when you publish your documentation. Now there are a couple of auto documentation solutions with REST. Uh, one is called Swagger. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that term. Okay, good. So this, now this is a little confusing. Swagger means a lot of different things, but at its core, it's a specification for how to describe your API. And you write this specification in JSON format. And actually, this, okay, I'll get into that in a minute. You write this specification in a, in a, in a particular format, and then different tools can parse it and create a cool kind of interactive documentation experience. This is the Swagger online editor. If you go to editor.swagger.io, uh, it give, you can start out with some samples. And this is actually a YAML format, but you download it in a JSON format and feed it into something. Uh, but basically, it's kind of like DITA, where DITA is a specification and different tools can grab the tags and display them in different ways or do different things with them. It's kind of like that. Um, but you know, as, as these REST APIs started to come out, people said, we need a, we need a standard way of uh, describing them so that people can uh, you know, build documentation solutions around them. So this is kind of a, a nifty thing. Um, it, there's a competing spec called RAML, which is the same thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a language that you use to describe your API, only this is written in YAML instead of JSON. 
And it's supposed to be more machine-friendly readable. So it's supposed to be more readable. And there's a whole company called MuleSoft that basically has tooling built around RAML specs. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But these are a couple of the auto-documentation auto solutions. And it's not really auto-documentation, because if you're describing it, right, all you're basically doing, you're creating a file and documenting it outside the source code. So it's not really generating the documentation from the source. Um, but there's another option. People have developed all kinds of libraries that you can integrate into your source. So it's somewhat confusing as you start to dig around the Swagger world. There's maybe a Swagger um, Java framework that you could incorporate into your Java files, and then you could generate it from the source. But by and large, a lot of people, if they're doing these Autodoc solutions, are going to create a separate file that, that tools can read. And I'll get into that more later. I actually have a sample and so forth. But here's the Swagger UI that, that it will render from that spec file. So see how it's. Um, they have a pet store, and if you go to, if you just do Swagger demo, you'll find this. Um, basically, you can add values to it. It's kind of like an API explorer mixed in with documentation. So you can add values to it and actually run the API call and get the response right there. Uh, but it tells you kind of this, this parameter or so forth here, and this is what it does. And you can type your own, and then you can see what it results in. And this is the format it looks, it looks like. Um, yeah. Are those API specs also used to design the API? Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So they, they exist before the actual. Yeah. So if it if if uh, at least as far as I understand it, if people um, design their API using a particular spec um, from the beginning, then then the it's that's the way to do the in source part. Um, but I'll show you a survey later. These actually aren't that common. Um, this is an example with uh, Clout. It's got this same kind of auto. I think this is using Mashery IO, which is another company that, that will process these kind of uh, these specs. And it, it can do things like you pass in your application key, and then all of a sudden you, you've got these fields, and you can try it out, and you see the results right there. And there's even one for the Washington Post. It's kind of kind of crazy. You can do all sort of things. Uh, but is this the sort of approach that you should take with REST API documentation? Maybe, maybe not. But I just wanted you to be aware that it exists. And it's the, it's the, the sort of autodoc equivalent uh, in the REST world. Um, I already covered this. OK, so. All right, I did a survey. Remember, this is the intro part to, to API Docs. I recently did a survey on my blog, and I pulled a lot of people from the API documentation group on LinkedIn, which is, by the way, the best group to ask API documentation questions. If you're not a part of it, definitely check it out. Lots of knowledgeable people. Uh, and I, I tried to gather some just basic information. So here are some, some responses. Again, only about 42 people. And it actually had a very open response format. So REST APIs are the most common sort of APIs that people in my survey document, uh, by far topping nearly 80% of the respondents. Um, and this kind of goes along with that other graph that we're looking at the, the trends for REST APIs was taking off. Uh, are you automating REST APIs? You know, are you using Swagger or RAML or something to kind of automate it? 
Uh, no, most people, some people, yes. But uh, a lot of people aren't doing that. And there are different reasons for that. Um, I did a podcast with uh, Peter Grunbaum, and I asked him, he's done a lot with automating REST APIs. He said, you know, for simple APIs where you have a call and response, they work, they work great. But for more complicated things where you have workflows and you have an endpoint that you pass into another one, eh, it's not so good. You know, you get a more sophisticated scenario and you can't just have a try it out kind of button. How are people doing the automation? Most of them are using Swagger and custom stuff. You know, custom tooling, that's my favorite, favorite response. Basically, some big shop has engineers who are playing around and building custom frameworks. Um, I, I have an aside here. Yeah. Um, Doug Fielding, the guy who invented the term REST, uh, complains that people have just started using it to mean any kind of uh, HTTP-based mm. API, and that uh, really most of the things labeled REST APIs don't follow REST principles. So. Good, good point, yeah. Um, you know, the, so Fielding, he had like a PhD or something in the 90s that, that uh, introduced, his, his he tried to describe it. 2000, I think. My understanding is that um, there's a great, uh, by the way, there's a great presentation you should check out by, I can't remember her name, but I have a link to it uh, <laughs> in one of these slides, where she's talking about kind of REST APIs and she's talking about Fielding. And basically, according to her presentation, Fielding was trying to describe the model of the web. When you, yes. go to a, you go to a website and you get some stuff back. Uh, that's the same model as a web API, where you put a URL and you get some stuff back. Um, and if you were to open a new browser and go to that same URL, you'd get, same, you'd get the same stuff. It's not going to remember your state, so it's stateless and so forth. Anyway, um, yeah, there's, there's a whole history there. What authoring tools are API doc writers using? This was a, a big question. Most of them, they're using, uh, they were one-off responses. You know, they, they weren't a common trend. A lot of people are using Confluence, but I think that means they're, they have an internal kind of collaboration platform and they use it. Could be wrong, but uh, a lot of people are using raw HTML. Some people are using Ditto, but there's really not a common trend where, oh yeah, everybody uses Flare or something, or everybody uses Acme help authoring tool. <clears throat> do you test out the API calls yourself used in the doc? Most people do, uh, or at least, uh, at least half of the people do. I was curious about this because it really depends on your API. If you have a REST API where you just have some endpoints, I think it's a lot easier to test out the calls. But if you have a Java API, it's a lot harder to kind of test things out. But people are definitely getting into the code. It's not just a you're not just editing for grammar or style. You know, you're, you're trying things out, you're looking at source docs, you're testing some calls. What IDE do you, do you use? So an IDE stands for Integrated Development Environment. When developers use, they don't just code in a raw text editor like Notepad. They have um, like an editor that will validate what they're writing and say, oh, you should you should really add this parameter here, or, or you can't add that parameter based on this access modifier and it suggests solutions and so forth. Eclipse is by far one of the most popular. Luckily, it's also free. Um, 
but uh, I recommend that if you want to jump into it, into the, the platform side, especially Java or something, download Eclipse. Uh, but you can also see some others. Question. Oh, sorry, didn't see it. Raise your hand higher. Be, be confident and speak loud. Um, is this for one language? Is this for one language? No, you can use multiple languages no, with Eclipse. Is this survey for one Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Just English, I think. No, um, oh, programming <laughs> language. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was like, uh, it wasn't language specific. Um, so Visual Studio is, is used for .NET. And Xcode is probably app developers doing uh, iPhone type of code. So yeah, it was a general question. It was actually, my survey was really a poorly worded survey. <laughs> Responses come back. And actually, a lot of people put oxygen. And I was like, is oxygen an IDE? <laughs> and I, and I, so I omitted it. And somebody corrected me. And they said, no, I'm an XML developer. And I use oxygen to do stuff. Well, it was Mark Baker who's developing his own framework for like uh, his own architectural framework. So anyway. All right, most common languages tech writers know. Java, JavaScript, Python, C++. And this actually corresponds with the most, if you search for what are the most popular programming languages that people have, uh, people have done surveys among developers, this, this corresponds exactly, these like first top six or so. Um, but yeah, you want to start learning something, you don't want to sink a lot of time into some forgotten language, spend all day learning COBOL or something. Yes? <laughs> How is Swift going to compete? I don't know. Actually, if you, I've asked developers what the best language for me to learn is, and you know what they tell me? They say, you know what, Java, it's going to be gone in 10 years. What you really need to learn is Scala and R or something. And so, <laughs> okay, they said the, the Scala. They're, they're, learn, learn Ruby. <laughs> well, they, these are programmers who are, I don't know why they're telling me this when I just want well, a basic they starting point. In functional programming. Yes. Um, my recommendation is Python. Okay. It's a lot more accessible than almost anything else. Yeah. Python. You can get in layer by layer, and, and it also includes a lot of the modern concepts. I see a lot of job descriptions that say knowledge of at least one core programming language, such as Java, Python, C++. <laughs> so you know, you hit one of the big ones, and maybe you convince people that hey, I I know if else loops, and you know, sign me up. <laughs> Yes? Asking for uh, favorite language is like asking for your favorite religion. Oh, yeah. People are, people are religious about this. Well, tech writers are just as religious about their tools, though. People get very, very fanatical. Um, do developers write the initial API documentation in the source code? Uh, so this is a big question, and it only really applies to the platform APIs for the most part. You know, if you have a Java shop, are, are the engineers writing that code or tech writers writing that code? For the most part, um, a lot of engineers, some know, some sometimes. It was kind of a poor question. But basically, I was just wondering, uh, do tech writers who are the power programmers look at the actual source code and, and pick out and say, oh, yeah, this method is interacting here and so forth. I'm going to document. Or do engineers kind of sketch out a skeleton version? I think the latter is a lot more common. Um, uh, engineers are going to give you a skeleton framework to work with. And even with the endpoints, you know, a developer is not going to create an endpoint and not describe what it basically does or, or list any of the parameters. Uh, more often than not, they'll put that on Confluence or some wiki 
they'll briefly describe what it does, here are the parameters, and then they're done. So you, you don't start from scratch and have to parse through like deep levels of code just to figure out what something even does. Do you write doc by looking in the source code? Wait, we have a question in the back. Flowchart, how common are flowcharts? I'd say they're probably the most common type of diagram and visual that you see in developer doc. Basic, uh, basic, yeah, squares and diamonds and little lines going this way and that. Actually, some platforms like Doxygen will automatically create little graphs of uh, uh, showing some, some visual re uh, relationships in the code. Yeah, but those are UML doc diagrams, it, aren't they? Yeah, isn't that kind of what? Flowchart. Can't you? Well, okay. Well, some basic visuals, UML diagrams, maybe auto or flowcharts in doc are pretty common. Why do you ask? Just uh, you were mentioning the developers sketching it out. And, oh, okay. Uh, in uh, yesterday's API workshop, I, I don't recall seeing any actual diagrams. Oh, okay. Yeah, developers sketch out all the time, and I think uh, I see flowcharts really commonly. So they're they're a best practice. Yeah. But actually, in the API. Oh, in the reference. In the, oh no. Yeah, in the reference documentation, you probably won't see it, but in the tutorials and programming guides, yeah, you will see that. Uh, all right, let's go to the next one. How do you access the source code? I was showing some people Git uh, as an example. That's probably the most common for web APIs. But Perforce, um, SVN, no access. Now, this is an interesting response, right? <laughs> Developers may not want you to access the source code because if you're going to access it and you make a comment or you screw something up and then you, then you recommit it and then it throws all kinds of uh, problems for them, maybe they, they don't want that. So at any rate, the, um, the whole SVN stuff can be undid and merged in, in intelligent ways. Yeah? If, if you're developed, if the programmers that you're working with are, have that stance. Aren't there trust issues on your team? <laughs> yeah, there, well, I'm sure there are trust they issues. They don't have to do a lot of error checking. What? If you don't mess with it. They have to do a lot of issues. Here's what. Test-based, test-driven test development sure. is, is, is finding that stuff, should be finding that stuff on a regular basis anyway. And you should be testing your comments before you push your before you push stuff back in the repository anyway. Here's a workflow that uh, Peter Gruenbaum explained is very common when he works with companies. He says he'll go in, he'll download the source code, they create another branch for him to commit all his documentation updates to. And then once he's done, then developers merge his branch in with the rest of the code and deal with it then. Yeah. So that's probably a common workflow. See, Git has this thing called a pull request that, uh, that you use to get that kind of merge. You have to, you, branches are very easy in Git. Uh, you can just create one with instantly with no trouble and use it. And then uh, when you've got it the way you want it, you think it's okay, you say, uh, you put up a pull request and they, uh, they, people review it. And sometimes pull requests are just to generate reviews rather than actually to get them to merge it in. But um, often the end, the end result of a, a pull request is that the, the code gets merged back in, but after everyone's had a chance to look at it. Thanks. Thanks, Richard. Okay, well, last comment there. If you were working in the main line, you'd have to do a build before every commit, so you just make sure you didn't break the build. There would be more work for you. Okay. All right, thanks. Um, this is pretty much, oh wait, last question in the survey. What is the most difficult part of doing API documentation? 
understanding the code, getting information from engineers, <laughs> creating the non-reference doc docs, understanding the audience, and identifying dependencies. This last one, it took a little bit to unpack what a dependency might mean, but the way I interpret it is, let's say you want to use a certain endpoint or a certain class. It may not be explicit that in order to use that class, you have to do certain things beforehand in order for it to work right. Maybe you need certain data, maybe you need a result of another endpoint. That kind of interdependencies are often unclear. Um, so yeah, the, now these challenges, I'll get into a little bit later of how you can maybe overcome them, but this gives you a little bit of overall survey taste of the API doc world. Um, and fine, oh, I guess there was one more question. How do you learn what you needed to know? A lot of people have actually learned quite a bit from developers. Uh, sitting down with them or interacting with them in some way. This is actually a really interesting one because I, I'm the sort of person who I don't want to come across as, as, as naive or dumb to a developer, right? So I'll try to learn something on my own and so I don't go in and ask some softball easy question that exposes my ignorance in any, any way. But developers have told me that really if you want to learn code, you should focus on specific industries as well, because the way one industry, one job sector, one uh, yeah, industry uses Java, be totally different from like a different industry. So you can't really learn everything from online tutorials and so forth about a language. You have to dive into how the specific industry is using it. In order to get that information, you really have to, you can only get it from the developers. Yeah. In the last question, there was an answer that it's hard to get information from developers. Oh, yeah. But you're learning from developers. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to get information, but this is how you, how, how you get it. None, and that's, none of those things are over 50%. <laughs> but uh, that's a great, great point. And um, I think, uh, yeah, in the API doc space, you're, you're working constantly with developers, which is a double-edged sword, right? They give you the, the information of life, and at the same time, they make it really difficult. I think part of the problem with developers is that they have a language that they have learned and they can express how something works in that language. But compare it to somebody who's an advanced mathematician and you say, can you tell me, uh, you know, how does this histogram work? And he's like, oh, well, you take the differential of this equation and you multiply it by this factor and the logarithmic, you know, and, and using language that maybe you don't have to understand what he or she is saying, and so the, the explanation just kind of goes past. So that's the problem with programming, right? People can say, oh, how does this work? And A, B, C, but it means nothing, right? So that's part of the challenge. Well, the other thing is that not all developers are alike. Yeah. And some of them may be hard to get information from, and some may be really good at helping. You yeah. Know what I mean, and they may, may not be the same developers. Exactly. Yeah, some developers, you know, they, they love challenges, and so... If you say, hey, um, I can't figure something out, it's like, well, what can they figure out? And they love to demonstrate their alpha tech, tech sort of, you know, <laughs> I'm so smart. Not all of them are like that. Some people are super helpful. Others are just, you know, they like to code in silence all day. So, Sarah. Um, it's also true that the audience is developers. So potentially they'll understand that ABC. Yeah. <laughs> so what I've found is that it's actually really interesting because you talk to your developers, you get something, you write it, and you ask them to review it, and they turn it back into their language, which is great because you know you understand it. <laughs> that's right. That, yeah, that's that's another huge, huge um, you know, challenge is just figuring out what is clear to the audience, because it, 
In a lot of regular software applications, a GUI, we often put ourselves in the place of the audience and say, oh, well, I'm confused here. I should elaborate here. Not so with developer audience, unless you're a former developer. Okay, so some takeaways from the survey. Java, Eclipse, Git are popular. Become familiar with getting info from both the whoops, source code and the developers. I hit some special button there. Um, and whatever takeaways you got, let's jump back on here. Uh, Just click slideshow at the top. That's right, I don't need to launch it. REST APIs are the most common, become a self-learner, and automating REST API doc isn't all that common. So that is the intro part, and now I want to deep dive into the REST APIs where we'll have a little bit more, um, a little bit more in, uh, activities, interactivities. But before we jump over there, tell me if you have any kind of questions right now. I split these up into different files because they were just too much. Okay, <clears throat> deep dive into REST APIs. So uh, we talked a little bit about REST earlier. Um, you want the, the nitty gritty details, right? It's basically a call and a response over the web using HTTP as the transfer language. Um, you can see the responses right in the browser but nothing is remembered. You go to the same endpoint again, and you're going to see the same stuff. Here's some sample endpoints. And this is kind of similar to when I worked at Badgeville. You have some kind of, uh, <clears throat> some kind of API site, followed by um, maybe an API key as your base. So, so this would be the same for all. This is like the same pattern, right? But then you, you add different uh, paths at the end, like users. And this is going to get all users. Uh, let's say you have users slash a spe special user ID. That is going to um, get just a specific user. If you do slash rewards, maybe you get all rewards. But if you do rewards slash a specific reward ID, you just get a specific reward. So there's a, there's a predictable logic that a well-designed API lends itself to. Um, let's do a, another example. Users slash user ID slash rewards. Well, you get all you get all rewards from a specific user. But if you do user slash user ID slash reward slash reward ID, you just get a specific rewards for a specific user. So this kind of endpoint logic is, is common in an API, um, API design. Uh, and, and a good API um, should only send people into the docs when you know, something isn't clear. Yeah? Yeah, uh, oh, the order of the parameters. Yeah, so, so reversing rewards and users, for instance. Yeah, so, uh, oh, so these aren't necessarily parameters. These are, this is the endpoint itself. Parameters would, would be tacked on at the end with like usually an uh, A or a question mark. Yeah, either way. Um, but the parameter order usually doesn't matter. But this endpoint order does matter, um, this part, the path itself. And this is just a, a sample, right? Uh, every API is different. So here's a sample response in JSON format. They come in key value pairs. So this is the key, this is the value, uh, and so forth. And <clears throat> some objects actually in JSON contain these little brackets, and this is called an array. So if you have like a bunch of key value pairs inside of a, something that's part of a key value pair itself, that's kind of like two levels deep, and you have a, a list of items. So we've got one photo here, 
another photo here, and it keeps going. So a lot of times you get back a response with multiple things and programmers have to iterate through them and pull, pull out specific information or, or do something with them. So if you want to get um, familiar with kind of um, interpreting the responses and looking at things, you definitely want to open up what's called your JavaScript console or developer console in Chrome. Um, this is one of the most popular sort of tools that people work with all the time in REST. And uh, so yeah, make note of that. So this is an example of the console open. And here, let's say, um, <clears throat> let's say in my code, I log something to the console with console.log, really, really common. Then I can get that whole JSON payload and put it right in the console, and it's got these little expandable things to easily kind of inspect it and check it out. Uh, but it's very common to kind of log things to the console to see uh, what sort of information you're getting back. Um, there's different methods. I mentioned get, post, delete, put earlier. Uh, so sometimes you can't really do a delete by just adding a delete parameter to your endpoint because people don't people safeguard that. So sometimes a method only allows you to run a or sorry an endpoint only allows you to run a certain method. Like let's say user, uh, maybe you can only get users. You can't delete a user. That kind of thing. So there are different methods available for different endpoints. And if you open up your console and you go to any web page. <clears throat> um, it lists all the different methods for the different things that you're getting. Or sorry, I shouldn't say getting, that you're requesting. So for here, I'm requesting different photos, and it tells you the method that you're using for accessing that resource as a get. So you can actually see it right in that console from your network tab. So there's lots of stuff in here, and, uh, and you can even get into the source and debug things. Uh, all right, so let's do an activity. This is, this is where the wireless thing is probably going to kill us. Um, so if you open up and go to, OK, let's open up the developer console, or, or let's just Java console. Go to network, and then go to your favorite website. Whoops. Oh, wait, let me go to the network tab. OK, when I go to my site here, you can see all the different all the different uh, things that I'm getting. So actually, I'm making this call to get this, this resource is making a, a request for all kinds of individual things on this website, and it's using this method. But um, yeah, I just basically wanted you to open up this console and see that there's, you can see the traffic that's coming, coming back to a website. OK, now, don't worry about that. Don't get stuck doing that. But, uh, <laughs> We, um, I have several samples that we've got um, because you know you, uh, I learned best by example, and I think many people do as well. So <clears throat> here's an example um, of using the Eventbrite API. So let's go to that real quick. Eventbrite is like an event management site, and let's say that I was putting on an event, and I wanted to pull in some information about the event onto my website. Well, Eventbrite has this nifty little API. And uh, if you look at their documentation, here are all the different, uh, ev different sort of endpoints that you can do. But the one we want in order to get information 
Uh, and you'd have to kind of familiarize yourself and figure out which one it is. Um, but it's where, whatever that one was, event details. So here it lists that you can create an event, <clears throat> you can retrieve an event, and it shows you the path. And whenever you see the little curly brace, it usually means you're putting in a special ID there. You don't actually include that curly brace, right? It's uh, a value that you're substituting. <clears throat> so you can do different things. You can actually publish an event, unpublish an event, and they do some sample requests. Uh, and this shows you this shows you all the details that you're going to get back uh, and what they mean. Okay, so let's go. Let me see if I have these examples set up. So this gives you kind of an overview of how this would work. We have a specific endpoint. We have to include an event ID. Here's how we would populate that endpoint with values. You have a, a specific event ID and your API key here. By the way, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, they're all fake on my site. <laughs> Just kidding. So the, the reason I, uh, the API key makes it, it, it authorizes you to make the request. So let's say that somebody, uh, let's say somebody developed an API that didn't have API tokens or keys, uh, and some hacker gets a hold of it and makes like a million requests to bring down a site and so forth. Well, companies want to be able to turn off things. Um, at, at Batchville, this happened all the time. Some a company would integrate something, they'd, they'd set it up to call it like every two seconds, and it would spike this huge traffic, and we could just turn off that API key and, and uh, reduce the problem. Well, um, one API get one key? Oh, no, no. Uh, the API key is like your own password to use that API. So, so if we like copy down your number or something, then we can put it in our code and yeah. you'll get yeah. blamed? Yeah, yeah. So I, I have no stake in using the Eventbrite API or anything. So you can, you can try to hack away. But uh, so in the sample files that I, that I gave you, because it's a pain, it's a serious pain to sign up for API keys just to do examples. It takes a long time. Um, I'm sure it's the best way to go. But I, I, I put some some functional API keys in some sample workshop files that we'll go through in a sec. Um, but actually, see, so there's also a post on my site uh, that walks through in detail how to do all these examples. And in that initial post, I did have my real API keys. And somebody added a comment and said, you, you need to take these API keys off or you're going to get hacked. And I said, who cares? Nobody cares. And sure enough, a few days later, <laughs> I was. I was looking at one of my code examples and it didn't work. And I said, what the heck? I didn't change anything. And it, I, I went to look at the, the call and it said API key token bad. You know, and I looked at the metrics and there were like tens of thousands of calls made with that API key. So I guess there's something to it. But anyway, <laughs> most, most APIs have a key. So I had to just click and regenerate a new key. It's like a two second process. And here's a sample response. Did you have your hand raised? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in many systems, the API key has a, or token has a finite lifetime, and after mm -hmm. some yeah. number of hours, it's more or less, it's dead, and uh, it won't do anything. Yeah. Good, good point. Yeah. So the Flickr API has that user token. That was another thing. I was creating a, a different example. It stopped working. I said, what the heck? And of course, <laughs> the token expired, and I just had to do it without the token, it seemed to work. We'll get into that in a minute. But um, so now here's some code. 
in order to make stuff okay let me come back here if um if you just want to let me actually open up the workshop file um give me a sec here eventbrite so this is in your file so if i were to just take this endpoint that you're seeing up on the board and pass it into the browser you would see and let's open up the console just for fun you're going to see that it actually comes back and I don't know how Eventbrite does it, but they somehow have their own formatting in the actual browser, no matter what site you're on. But you can see that you've got, you've got all kinds of data coming back. So this is basically how it works. You get a bunch of data. I, I've got the event name. Now this is an event with the API workshop with Ceramatics, which is why I was using the Eventbrite um, to help do event registration for that. Uh, so anyway, shows you all this data. Now, what do you do with that data? Let's say that you want to actually put it on your page. Here's where programmers um, pretty much know what to do. <laughs> so this is an example of, of you, you're getting the JSON and you're basically accessing certain points. So you access these different parts of the response through something called dot notation. And then, and then you can append it to different parts of your page. So this, if I were to run this example, um, let me go back here. It's going to show that code, right? Because I'm picking out those parts of the response and, and putting them onto the page. All right, so that's just an example. Um, this is the raw response, but I only want certain, see, I don't really need free, true, minimum quantity. I don't need any of that stuff, right? I just wanted the name, which is right here, and um, the description, which is somewhere else. Okay, let's do another. I have several of these examples. Um, okay. Now, with code samples, I just want to emphasize that they should really be simple. So this, this code sample that I was showing is actually incredibly simple. I doubt anybody would ever use that simple of a code. And, and usually you don't even need code samples like this um, that show uh, how to like put something on a web page. But for fun, it's, it's nice to actually see something appear on the page. You know, it, it gives you a, a sense of how somebody might use it. So let's do another example. Um, uh, hold on. Kind of skipping around here. Want to jump over? Let's jump into the Clout one. So Clout is a service. Actually, Clout I think is one of those those startups that just kind of faded. But they tell you um, what your what your online influence is. So how much clout you have when you do a post on Twitter and other networks. How many people retweet it, and how cool are you, or are you really insignificant? That kind of thing. <laughs> um, so. So the, this, uh, this endpoint, they have a score that tells you, you know, how do you rate? How do you rank in the, in the world of, of people who have clout online when they do something? Where are you? And so let's say you wanted to get your score. Well, you first find the endpoint that kind of has the score. And in this case, um, uh, actually, we should probably go to it. Okay, so... Let's turn this guy off. So here you can see all the different methods. And, and 
they just expand in line because they're using one of these kind of um, interactive auto solutions. But you find out that, okay, to get the score, you just need to pass in your, a value for your clout ID and you'll get that back. So I think by default, they populate it with Justin Timberlake. So make you feel. <laughs> now this one you can actually try right on, right on there. Um, and I'm getting an error. Oh, you know what? Hold on, let me sign in. I signed out of everything trying to figure out the wireless. Okay. So it's the year Columbus sailed the ocean blue. All right. <laughs> so you can see here the response is, is uh, he's got like a 92, right? And if you were to take this URL or this path here and just pass it into your browser, you get the same thing. So a lot of times these API doc sites uh, will have built-in API explorers, and, and this is built with Mashery IO docs uh, through one of those auto doc solutions I was talking about. So um, in order to... Now, in order to get my score, you have to figure out your cloud ID, which is another endpoint. So here's an example where you know you have to figure out a whole workflow. A real tasks a real task involves using multiple things. So, for example, if you pass in your Twitter ID, which don't know off the offhand, but your screen name, uh, and get your ID, then you could get your ID, then you could pass this ID. Sorry, the response, there we go, the ID. Pass this guy into the score. See, so sometimes um, to do a real task, you have to do multiple things. So here, I'm a 55, which doesn't sound very exciting. Um, <laughs> but this is a basic idea of, of you, you have a call and you get a response. Um, so here's just to reiterate, I have a certain endpoint we populate it with values, right? And you get back a response. And if you wanted to display that response, there's lots of different ways you could do it. Um, I have an example in the API files uh, where you just basically get the score and it pulls it out of the response and displays it on the web page. Nothing very fancy. But let's say you're a PHP developer or a Java developer. Well, in that case, other people can use their own code in order to display the response. So here's an example of somebody explained how you could show your, your clout score using PHP. Let's say you're on WordPress, which has a PHP architecture, and you want to you wanna get it. So here they're, they're basically getting the URL. They're passing that URL. They're setting up some variables, essentially, and then they're, they're um, yeah, they're basically just printing out the score that they're defining. Uh, but everyone is different. So let's say you're Python and you want to do the same thing. You've got different codes. So this is the beauty of web APIs. You use whatever language you want. Every language has a different way of basically grabbing a response passed from the browser and passing it into the code. So this allows for developers to work in the language they want, but make calls and get the information. Uh, of course, whenever you're making a call, you have to account for the time it takes to go and get the resource and bring it back. So it depends on your business. In my current job, um, it, it's, it is kind of a huge issue because they do real-time bidding of ads that appear on the site, and all kinds of things happen uh, in milliseconds. Okay, so 
Why don't you do a little practice? Go to uh, the cloud.com, developer cloud.com IO docs, and try to figure out what your clout ID is uh, based on your Twitter name and see if you can get your score. Now, because you'd have to actually sign up for an API key if you don't want to do that, open up the uh, exercise files and um, I think the API calls one. You can grab a, an API key from that if you want. So this guy right here, you could just use that if you want. I don't care. <laughs> if you search for cloud developer docs, you just find it. Not a whole lot of sites there. So I'll give you a, a few minutes. Just, I just want you to play around with something. I just picked some random things online, that's all. So uh, in that workshop files, it's API, I think it's API calls.txt. And if you want, if you want to just, like if you just want a quicker thing to do, just go ahead and copy this guy here and paste it into your browser. Paste it into your browser and see what comes back. Really? <laughs> What's your score? 36. Really? <coughs> Maybe the lower score is better. No, pretty sure it's not. Yeah, so. Did you, uh, you can grab all the workshop files right here. Oh, yeah, yeah, I grabbed API, API calls, apicalls.txt. The key is just in one of those, so let me. If you don't have a Twitter account, it's not going to give you Why don't you just put in, you can put in my name, Tom Johnson, whatever. Or, or pick a name, I'm sure it's taken. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and the, yeah, so. Um, what do I want you to learn from this exercise? Basically, that the way REST APIs work is that you pass an endpoint to your browser and you get data back in response. Not a whole lot. Yeah. Um, I just give people another second. I've got another example. wasn't quite sure how many to do, so maybe I'll skip my next example. I just want to show you where I have some more detail. So this is a super simple example. I want to point you to where you can get more information. 
So if you go to my blog and search for several REST API tutorials using the Eventbrite, Clout, and Flickr APIs, I've got links that walk you through this whole process and kind of go uh, detail screenshot by screenshot through the whole process. And, and also I've got some more of this sample code. Because I don't want to spend too much time on this, um, we're going to keep going. Uh, here's another example. Uh, let's say that you want to get all the people you influence and find out who influences you. Well, you'll notice that in the actual reference documentation, this is extremely vague. You know, what is an influencer or an influencee? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is part of the problem with the auto-generated docs, is that you have to keep the descriptions really short. You have to have some kind of other material that actually explains what everything truly means uh, when it gets complicated. And this is why um, reference doc is only kind of a, it's a quick reference to figure out, okay, what was the syntax for that endpoint? What was the response? It's not really where you go to learn about what the API does and, and kind of what it's used for and the goals. Um, it just kind of lets you know. Yeah, this one. I mean, essentially, essentially I, I had to look this up because I didn't even understand. But basically, let's say you, you, you make a post on Twitter. Well, if uh, tons of people repost it, that's better than if you made like 30 posts on Twitter and only one person reposted it. So it's like this whole complex algorithm. What is really clout? And so they probably couldn't describe that here. It would get so bulky. So you say you looked it up. How did you do that? Oh, I found it in the other, I Googled it and found it in the other docs that explained the <laughs> tutorial. Sarah. That's actually where technical writers really help. So yeah. in the reference docs, you know, there'll be a, like a metric that says how many people have Good point. Thank you for adding that. Yeah, this is where a huge value add comes in for the tech writer. Yes, Chuck. Well, when we think about the concepts of information design, you've got something, you, great, great example. Influencers and influencers, what does that mean? What would we normally do for documentation, for user assistance, yeah. or something like that? Yeah. Create a link to that content. When you've got these automated systems that have a bunch of stuff in source files, can links to more information be added to that automation? Can you add links? And I think the answer is yes. It probably depends a bit on, on what is allowed. But, but yeah, this would be a great opportunity. I'm not totally sure with like a mashery IO docs how you do links, but I know you can do it in Java docs and other things. OK, so here's just one example. Another example, very similar. You've got an endpoint. You pass in the ID. You populate it with real values. You get back a response. Uh, this, this is then used to uh, uh, plug into your code. So here, this is kind of an interesting thing. This is more of a JavaScript aside. But this, this, is, a, this is from jQuery. And what this is going to do is get each of those responses and iterate through them. It's a very common sort of thing that people do in programming. They get a list of stuff. They've got to like go through each item and check for things and then do something with it. Um, we're not going to do this activity. but. Uh, I want to go through one more example. Flickr. Flickr's got a great API. Um, these are all you know, world-class examples to follow. Uh, let's say that you wanted to get a gallery of photos. Uh, and a gal Here's another question. What's a gallery, right, versus an album? Does anybody even know? Gallery versus album on Flickr. 
Galleries, uh, you can't create your own gallery, or at least you can't create a gallery out of your own photos. Uh, versus an album, you can. So another example where this just doesn't cut it, right? But once you figure out what you want, um, once you figure out what you want, this is kind of all you need is, is you, you want to know what arguments can I pass to it and, and so forth. And what does an example look like? So here's an example. You want to get a Flickr gallery. This is the endpoint. You add a bunch of values. Now here you add parameters to it. Um, this, this, little, this little at symbol uh, adds one parameter, the API key. The gallery ID is another parameter. And this format is another parameter. And this is even another one. Um, <clears throat> so, so this right here is ampersand, thank you. Thank you. Uh, just getting confused. <laughs> but this is the basic path. Get, sorry, flickr.galleries.getphotos. That's the endpoint, and these are all the parameters. And then you get back a whole mess of stuff in the response. So if you want to just see how this one works, this is another great example. So, um, and it took me a while to code this example, so I'm going to show it. If you go into the workshop files and you double-click your Flickr one, you can see that I've pulled all kinds of cool photos from Flickr's site right into my page code. And let's look at the code for this one, because this, I want, this underscores another point I keep making. So uh, I'm just going to grab this URL. So a gallery is basically a collection of photos that people um, select with a theme. And the response when you get back this gallery shows a bunch of information. Photo, we've got ID, uh, the owner. But what I want, in order to show all these photos on my page, I need some source paths for the image URL, right? I, in, an image tag has a source requirement, and I, I want to find that. Where do you find that in here? If you want to construct an image source, where do you find it in the response? you will not find it. <laughs> so what you have to do, this is where the regular docs come in handy. Let me flip back to the PowerPoint. Um, so in the regular docs, it exp uh, I thought I had a picture of it. I guess I don't. But in the regular docs, it explains that basically in order to construct the URL, which would be a real task, you have to add various things. So you have to add. Uh, like your server ID plus the ID of the photo plus your plus the secret. Oh no, there's a farm ID. So you add all that stuff together, and that constructs the valid image source URL. So this is an example of again where the technical writer would be the person who actually explains how to do a real task, whereas the reference is just telling you these are the parameters to get this response, and this is what it comes back. And an engineer is usually just going to document that basic reference part. You, you get back the, the farm ID, the, the server ID, and the ID. No mention of, oh, and by the way, if you want to actually piece together an image URL, you're going to have to grab each of these different components and assemble them dynamically into a URL. And is there a specific order in which that? Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the order. So all that kind of stuff comes into play. Yeah. OK, so I think we are getting this point. So let's move on. Uh, more details, again, on my website if you want to really dive into it. Any questions? Yeah. Yeah. Um, as we were criticizing the, the reference portion, 
um, I wondered how does a programmer approach an API? I presume they don't go immediately to the API reference content. How does they a programmer approach an API? Uh, that's a great question. Does anybody have any great responses for that? They look for example. They look for example code. Yeah, usually, so here's an interesting fact. Um, recently had a presentation by this uh, designer developer guy uh, named Greg Koberger at readme.io. And he said that the average designer developer guy uses a uh, person makes eight to consults and uses between eight to 10 APIs for each website that he or she is building. And so you've got to like jump into APIs and the developer is looking for quick code to copy. They don't want to like, they don't want to read through all the docs. They just want quick code to copy. For example, here's a great one. Um, the Eventbrite, I needed a button uh, when I was trying to get a button for people to sign up for that event. I just wanted a button to put on my site. I, I found a, a code snippet to copy and paste, and it worked. Of course, they make it easy because they know everybody wants this button. But the same thing, people are going to be looking for copy and pasteable kind of code snippets. On the other hand, though, if somebody's really digging into an API, let's say it's not just a simple web service, it's something people paid thousands of dollars for and maybe takes months to implement, it's going to be a much different experience. Well, they'll still start from, you know, copy and paste something, and then it doesn't yeah. work the way they want it, and they want to know, well, how do I change that aspect of it? And then they may have to yeah. go and read more stuff. Yeah, exactly. Great point. There, um, what we, what we actually have, and I think it's very common, we call them reference implementations. So they're like sample apps. Right. Mm -hmm. So a developer, you give them a sample app, and the person looks through it, and they say, oh, yeah, okay, get it. Don't need the docs, or they just copy and paste it. But as Richard says, they, they're going to need to tweak it. They may say, I need more information. They get it, and so forth. But yeah, you give people sample apps, and they love you for it. So, it's, so it sounds like they really do start with the API, therefore, or with the um, API reference material. So yes. we need to be putting more information into that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, I think um, I, I really don't have any great uh, response about where people totally start. But I think they do start at some kind of conceptual level, um, sample level, rather than just the reference. Usually, yeah, the reference is consulted. Um, sorry, uh, any other questions before we jump into a, a topic that I think is really interesting? <laughs> So remember, I said at the beginning, somebody is looking for somebody's looking for uh, somebody, a person who can design an API doc site that emulates Dropbox's doc documentation. So I was looking through API doc sites, and they're all a lot of them are modern looking, awesome. You know, they're the Catwoman experience, the leather on the motorcycle kind of thing. <laughs> and remember that that in API documentation. You, what you produce is not just a bunch of text, it's actually the product people get uh, that they're navigating and so forth. Um, of course, the real product is the information they use, but the way they interact with it is through this API. So I looked through some of the popular ones on programmable web. Uh, they list the most popular ones. You don't have to actually start from A and go through just to see what's there. And I tried to look for design trends um, because you know we're taking a lot of this information from in taking the information from engineers, we're populating and doing the site. Engineers usually aren't front-end designers or anything. So how can you get a cool-looking site? What are the design patterns? What are people looking for in their API documentation experience? 
Probably everybody references this Stripe API as the paragon example of how to do API documentation. And what they do is have a, a third column over here. This is a three column layout, a third column with a bunch of code samples. Now what you probably don't see here uh, in the screenshot is that I'm signed into the site. And because I'm signed into the site, my API key, which I, had, I signed up for when I logged into the site, is auto-generated into the actual code samples dynamically. And as a result, um, the code samples are customized to my, own, to my own self. I could copy and paste. Well, this is just showing a response. But I, I could copy and paste things more easily because I don't have to swap in my own API key. Apparently, this is a huge uh, sort of trend that you see. But, uh, but showing sample code beside it is, is a pattern that other people have adopted. Now, this is a, an example from a Jekyll template somebody's developing, uh, not me, somebody else, that has, uh, they've, imitated, <laughs> they've imitated the Stripe API almost exactly. <clears throat> but it's built on a different platform. Um, and you can see how, how this sort of thing is popular because code samples are incredibly popular. And here you're foregrounding highlighting the code right in the uh, main interface. Now, here's another sort of aspect of this. Let's see if this works. Something called scroll spy. Um, so if you scroll down, I took a video since, you know, never sure if wireless is going to work. But if you look on the left, you'll see that things are dynamically highlighting as it's scrolling down. And this page is quite long. Uh, it just keeps going. And you know, in traditional tech com, we're taught to chunk things up and, and, and make them, you know, people read 200 words and they click away and that kind of thing. Well, developers uh, think clicking is kind of passe and they, they, they just like to scroll, I guess. So um, longish pages are very common. And in order to facilitate a longish page, you need jump navigation that dynamically tells the user where they're at. This is actually... Um, something that you can freely get from Bootstrap. It's called Scroll Spy. So if you go to getbootstrap.com and you look on the right, they've got a kind of a cool example of Scroll Spy. And it just keeps um, highlighting stuff in the right. There's a lot of information on this page. In fact, I don't think too many doc sites have this much information on one page. But it just keeps going on and on. And uh, it's the single page doc experience with dynamic TOC highlighting. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So developers, they like to have, just to repeat, because I'm recording it, they like to be able to search the page, control find, find it. Don't like information fragmented, have to click here and here, bounce there and bounce there. So anyway, this facilitates the sort of design pattern. Here's another common thing is that uh, these sites are, they have seamless product branding with, with the, with the uh, company. So this is Yelp's API and it matches their color scheme and palette. Um, in contrast to uh, document generator type uh, solutions, a lot of times in REST APIs, it's, it's, a, it's a product that is you know, of paramount importance to match the company branding. Here's a common thing. Um, this is from Twilio's API, which is another sort of model API. They've got a lot of uh, navigation tabs to switch and see implementations in different languages. So 
you know, I can't imagine these code samples are that complicated since they're, um, uh, I don't know, across seven different languages or eight different languages. But it makes it easier for people. You know, if you're coding in, in Python, you copy and paste that one. And what's even better is once you choose a language, as you navigate to other pages, it remembers your choice. So it's kind of well done. Uh, another common thing is to, to basically have interactive real-time requests based on your authorization key. So you sign into the site, and then it uses your API key in all of these sample requests and lets you try it out. Um, this is an example from the Stripe. It says, one of your test API keys has been filled into all the examples on the page, so you can test out any example right away, that kind of thing. Uh, another really common design pattern with API docs is a hello world tutorial, something to get people started. Um, and actually, this comes back to your question. Where do developers start? The sample hello world app is probably a great place. Uh, but you'll see this in a lot, of, a lot of docs. There's even an acronym, time to hello world, is how long does it take to get a sample app up and running? Um, and people, people score and rate things by that. How complicated is it? Uh, code samples are also abundant, and not just any code samples, but code samples that are highlighted with really good-looking syntax highlighters. So not your, not your, um, not your plain Jane, black and white kind of uh, code sample, but actually good-looking code uh, and, and abundant code everywhere. Uh, the more code samples, the better. So these design trends: the third column, maybe to show responses in code. I don't know how common that one is, really, but lots of code. Single page scroll, seamless product branding, navigation tabs, code syntax highlighting, hello world section, interactive explorers to do the API. Now here's one behind the scenes. A lot of people are using static site generators and they're writing in Markdown. Markdown is a simple syntax like in Wikipedia, you go to edit a Wikipedia page and it uses a, uh, it doesn't use Markdown but it uses something like it. Uh, I think it's textile but basically, um, or no, it's, I don't know what it is, some wiki syntax. But basically, it's a simplified form of writing. Almost every developer that I've run into really likes Markdown um, because it's simple. For example, for a bulleted list, you would use an asterisk. For a numbered list, you just use a number, like one dot whatever, uh, that kind of thing. And the engineers who are building solutions for doc sites, for other sites, are implementing parsers that take and process the markdown and render it into HTML. So if you give somebody an XML solution and you're working with a front-end designer, you may run into um, friction because they don't want to work with XML. Some non-trends, things I didn't really see. And of course, this is all informal. You know, don't take this as anything more than just Tom looking through things and giving you his feedback. But I don't see hardly any PDF output for API doc sites. Um, part of the reason is that you want to show the response, and sometimes it's really long. So you're going to have this huge you know, manual. That's kind of ridiculous. So, uh, but maybe a short one-pager wouldn't be too uncommon, but still, I didn't see any. Short pages, didn't see a lot of that. A lot of that kind of single-page scrolling experience. Um, you know, in TechCom, we often single-source things into multiple outputs and have you know, one output for this audience and another output for this, and they're highly redundant between them. I didn't see a whole lot of that. Mostly on the web, I think people, um, they, they're designing with search engine optimization in mind, and they don't really do that kind of multi-channel output. There's one site, it's rarely translated, 
you know, this one audience and you, you somebody described it as, as kind of like a pie. You put the whole pie out there, but you don't expect everybody to eat the whole thing. They just take the slice they want, that kind of strategy. Not a lot of DITA or XML authoring models. I didn't see hardly any EPUB formats. Um, not very many comments on pages, you know, the ability to comment on things. Wikis, not too common. Splunk is, a, is, a, is an example of a company who actually does use wikis quite extensively in their developer docs. But by and large, um, and then the whole Confluence thing, I'm still wrangling with that because that's a wiki. But not too many wikis in the web API landscape. And, and then not too many video tutorials. People just seem to want code snippets. Um, Video code, code samples are kind of hard to show in a video anyway, but you might show the result of the code. So the question, how do tech writers make beautiful API doc websites? And that's, um, that's a question you'll have to kind of wrangle with. It's one I've been wrangling with. Um, I, I was using DITA extensively and doing all kinds of things to try to like make the output and realized that I wasn't really gonna get anywhere. So I've, I've been, <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't mean to, I don't mean to poke fun at data because there's some, some sites like I know Couchbase, they use data and their docs look great. But uh, by and large, I've decided to experiment with something, something called Jekyll, which has a liquid, a markup that uses, sorry, it uses a syntax that involves markdown and something called liquid, which allows you to do programming logic inside of the markdown or the HTML, whatever you're using. And uh, this, this framework online called Bootstrap, which I'm sure you've heard of, um, gives you like ready-made pieces that you just plug in. Uh, and you can do so much, so much more with this. Um, it's very customizable. And I've got a prototype I'm developing, so if you want to check it out later, I'm sure we can, uh, can uh, uh, you know, have a discussion about it. But basically, Jekyll is an awesome site. And it's, a lot it's quite common. For example, the getbootstrap.com site, is it uses Jekyll to build it. Uh, so it's a common design platform that gives you the flexibility to add all of these jQuery libraries, to add all kinds of um, frameworks on the web to do the, the beautiful designs. Okay, any questions, comments, thoughts on any of that? Karen. So behind that, that last uh, slide that you showed, yeah. your, okay, your Jekyll prototype, what is behind that? Do you have a cascading style sheet for that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's actually this whole, yeah, it, cascading style sheet. But now designers, they've kind of moved to another level as well. They use something called less or SAS that allows you to use variables and like logic within CSS to create like more sophisticated and advanced um, rules that, that, that then create CSS files and so forth. But um, let me give you an example of something cool that I was just playing with. Uh, let me see if I've got it on my if it's still running. Yeah, so I mentioned that you can add all kinds of jQuery libraries. So there's this one called Shuffle, and you can, you can easily shuffle things, right? You want to do the scroll spy thing, you just grab it and it works, that kind of stuff. And you just plug in these things into this framework that's built on um, HTML, and, and, and uh, you can do a lot of cool things with it to try to build sites. Can you get that translated into Greek? <laughs> 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 yeah. No. Okay, so that ends the, I believe we're at the end of the second part. Um, oh. Oh, no, let me, um, okay. There's even more. I told you I had a lot of content here. <laughs> so 
I wanted to touch on auto-generated doc solutions. I gave a presentation to a, a San Francisco chapter a while ago, and they had tons of questions about the automated stuff, the swagger, and I was floundering, so I thought people are going to ask me and I should have something. So there's a lot of automated doc solutions out there, swagger, raml, one called enunciate. You know, you should have these available if you, if you want to try this. Um, there's a slide deck. Uh, you can't really see it down there, but it's in the show notes. Somebody surveyed a bunch of GitHub repositories, and they found that Swagger was the most common, commonly used auto doc solution, and then RAML next. Um, now, granted, she said these are just repositories, not necessarily implementations, but it's a hugely common sort of platform. And I, want, I know I've already talked a little bit about it, but I wanted to dive more into it. Um, what is it? It's a spec for describing an API so that uh, humans and computers can explore it and understand it. Um, here's an example of the Swagger code. You can see that it's just written, it's JSON that shows you different kinds of things. Um, and if we go to, how do I go into that? I was going to say you can explore it at that pet store and get a feel for how it, how it is. Um, this is the online editor I mentioned and the output. So if you want to compare that, uh, I know I'm kind of jumping through there. If you want to kind of actually see an example of the Swagger spec, in your API doc workshop files, I found somebody who had developed a site comparing them, and I downloaded the code um, uh, just that she, I believe, had used in order to create this. Now this one is the, the RAML one. And this one is the Swagger one. So if you just want to kind of see what does the code look like behind those things, this is what it looks like. And this, the person did a sample Hello World type of app, and they passed it into something called Swagger UI, which then produces that output. So this is in a JSON format, and this is in a YAML format. And they're highly similar, except that YAML, um, there's some slight differences in YAML, and I'm not entirely sure what they are. But this gives you a kind of a way to compare the two. Um, yeah, you know, I feel like I already kind of touched on that. I don't want to dig too deeply into it. So why don't we jump ahead to jump ahead to the end and let me get to the code samples part. I've only got about ten minutes, and this is one of the more this is one of the more interesting ones. Unless somebody has a question. Do you have any questions about anything that you want me to jump into? Okay. Um, give me a sec here. All right. So, <laughs> the code samples are, are probably the most important thing in your documentation. And this is why I want to jump ahead to this. And, and there's also a whole slide deck on Javadocs that I doubt we'll get to, but it's there and it's really descriptive. Basically, if you think about it, why are code samples so important? Well, the code is written in another language. And if the audience speaks that language, that code is going to communicate very clearly to them what things mean. Whereas if you try to describe it, for example, if I've, I spoke something in Spanish, me gusta trabajar, I like to work, right? And I tried to describe it, well, you first add a, a verb and then you add a tense, it doesn't really mean a whole lot to people. But if people speak Spanish, they immediately understand me gusta trabajar, right? I like to work. Um, 
But so this is why code samples they just speak and communicate powerfully to to users. So you see them peppered throughout the tutorial docs, and this is the non-reference docs that that really tech writers thrive in. Um, that that you're you're asked to explain how to implement the API, how people use it, and you pepper all of your tutorials with code samples. Here's another code sample when you're learning Java. You know, lots of code samples. This is from Oracle's site, and code samples are really tricky because how do you annotate them? This is an example from a, a book that's trying to teach you Java, and this is Headfirst's approach. They, they try to make it kind of quirky and fun, so they write all their, their little annotations. But you can see that there's, there's a challenge here. How do you describe something in the midst of code without interfering with the person's ability to kind of absorb the code and, and clearly see what's going on? Uh, sorry, I'm jumping around. Okay, <clears throat> the, <laughs> my approach on this, I um, actually gave a presentation a while ago to this, this chapter and it was like all 20 questions. These are, these are some common kind of questions that people ask around the code examples. How do you get code, code samples? Do you have to be, yeah, 10 minutes, right? Do you have to be a programmer to write code samples? And this is what somebody says. This is from a, a LinkedIn thread. Person says, uh, you, you've got to know enough programming to both read and understand code samples and create your own, but you don't have to be a full-fledged programmer. And this is a key distinction. With the code samples and the documentation, you want to strip everything away that is distracting and just focus on the raw kind of uh, principle you're trying to demonstrate. Whereas in production code, you're going to throw in all kinds of stuff for, uh, for style, for uh, performance, whatever kinds of things. Um, but code samples and documentation are really simple. And there's a great analogy. Um, if, you're, if you were going to include a graphic in your documentation, they've done studies and found that the less detail you include in the graphic, the more clear it is to the user. So if you take a picture of an engine, um, the person who looks at it is going to be so distracted by all the different parts and all the details. There's so much more information to take in. But if you replace that with a line drawing, in a minimalist way, black and white, of just like certain engine parts, it tends to communicate a lot more clearly to the audience. And code samples are that exact same way. Well, you know, the, the point is that, I mean, if to draw a really simple minimalist drawing and communicate with it, it takes a great artist. Yeah. And, and, to, do a, and to do a code sample that really explains exactly what you need and leaves out the parts that you don't need and so forth, that takes a program. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, <clears throat> so we, um, this kind of leads into this other question I often hear. You said it takes a programmer. Uh, a lot of people say, well, if I, if I could program, you know, I'd be a programmer, not a writer. So, so uh, how do technical writers get these cool code samples you know, without being programmers? Because they don't like programmers. <laughs> <laughs> well you work with engineers. Some people create them themselves. Um, but this is, a, this is a quote from Sarah Maddox, who we have in our own presence. Yeah. <laughs> Blame her. Oh. Sarah, can you read your quote? Can you read it? So we have the authentic voice. Code is a piece of syntactically correct and semantically useful code. 
written to illustrate the functionality and usage of an API or a developer tool. It provides a stepping stone between the conceptual overviews and the complex implementation required for a production-ready application. So this is in, I believe this is in your article on code samples in Intercom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Um, so thank you. It, really, um, simple code, ex code examples that illustrate what you're trying to do without going beyond can, can do a lot more. And, and at that simplistic level, um, technical writers can learn the, the code. They can figure it out. They can start you know, writing it if possible. Or um, they can just get it from engineers and describe it, which is probably equally as common. Right now, I've got a million more slides, but I feel like I've talked for a long time, and I just want to kill it. So, what um, what questions, what questions do you have? I want to make sure anybody's question is at least uh, surfaced, if not answered here. Tell me something, Wendy. Um, so I was just curious if you could comment briefly on your experience trying to write API documentation in, in Gitta, um, and why you jettisoned that. So why not write in Ditto? Well, when I was at Badgeville, we had an extensive REST API. And there was already a Drupal solution in place. So Drupal is kind of like a popular web platform. People had built scripts all around that process, wasn't changing it. And our tutorials were all on this Drupal site. But I kind of felt like Ditto should be something I experiment with, and I wanted to try it. So when I moved to a new company, they didn't have an authoring process that they liked, so I said, let's try, let's try Ditto. We had a high reuse and conditional filtering requirement, different audiences, different platforms. And um, so for all the tutorial docs, um, they are actually currently in Ditto. Uh, and it works pretty well in that you can filter things out. Um, the reference documentation is de generated with Java docs and Doxygen. So there's not a whole lot. I actually spent an incredible amount of time trying to figure out how to pull the information from the reference docs into Ditta. And there's a great, somebody gave me a demo at Stilo, this migrate uh, tool that can actually take the doc put output from Doxygen and transform it into Ditta. And it looks decent. Um, and it's cheap. I don't know how much it was, but it wasn't very much. But, um, why, why not? I think I've become increasingly frustrated because in my, I don't want to have a bunch of different outputs. For me, I, I have to generate eight different, eight different uh, projects and upload them all, and it takes a long time. I want to have one output with tabs that a user can navigate through. I want to have, um, I want to have easy, easy like code responses that show, or I want to do some, I want to try like the dynamic insertion of API keys at some point, figure out how, how to do all that. And I felt like in order to do anything innovative uh, with Ditta, I would have to be an XML developer to figure out how to transform the Ditta into a web output. And I know that um, there aren't that many web output uh, plugins that are inexpensive and available. And Oxygen's was pretty good. Um, but all the other solutions, a lot more. So anyway, uh, on the other hand, though, you should check out Couchbase's documentation if, you're, if you like Ditta. And I can point you to somebody, and they seem to make it work really well for them. So they had been using Nan Nanak, which is an, a static site generator, and they switched to Ditta because they didn't like Markdown and because they didn't, whoever built their first Nanak site made 
made it so that 300 pages compiled into one view. So it was very unmanageable. So anyway, you have different experiences. Other question, yeah. So, so you're saying you're, you're at this company, the, the manager doesn't want the tech writers writing code samples. And I think this is a totally valid point. When I was um, at Badgeville, I was really getting into JavaScript. And I was having a tremendous amount of fun trying to figure out how to write code samples and display things. And I would pass them by the, the developer and say, hey, can you review this? He would always tell me that I was writing way too much code. And he'd, make it, he'd compress it. He'd say, you can use this method and it's, you know, make it way more efficient. Or, hey, you know, this is going to cause too much, uh, it's, it's going to make too many calls. For example, iterating through a list of things, you know, they can do it in a very efficient way. So yeah, even if you write your own code samples, you have to run them by your developers. And the reality is, something that would take me like half a day, they do in 10 minutes. And it's not very efficient. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Chuck, and then I think we're ending. Yeah. I just want to make a quick suggestion. One of your later slides in this deck says, how can you learn programming? Oh, yeah. And um, if, if you never took any programming classes when you're getting your technical communication degree or certificate or anything like that, besides some of the resources you have here, books, online tutorials, Udemy, and stuff like that, I have found another good resource is where we're sitting right now. Where? Community, community colleges almost always have evening classes where they teach all sorts of different programming languages. And if, and if that's a good way that you learn, it's, a, it's also an inexpensive way to learn. Definitely, yeah, get all, great, great example. Um, one thing I, that I have uh, heard a lot, uh, when I was trying to learn Java a lot more, I went on the, to the site called caveofprogramming.com, and uh, I love the guy's approach, and he basically, in order to learn anything, would start with a little sample project, and he'd show you some code, and you'd play around with it. And he said, copy the examples, you know, and, and tweak them, and, and do it. So I, I did that with Eclipse, and I've done tons of little tutorials, and just playing around with things is probably the best way to learn. Um, you go to any kind of software shop training, they always tell you to, you know, explore on your own, to create your own projects if you really want to learn something. Can you write down that site? Cave of Programming. It's like C-A-V-E um, and then of programming. Oh, yeah, cave, like, a, like an actual cave. OK, last question. Just a comment on using Eclipse there. One, one advantage is that it will help you out greatly. You know, tell you when you make a mistake, it will automatically, instantly tell you what yeah. mostly likely what you did wrong, or at least give you a couple possibilities. And it's, it's, it's helpful to learn to when you know, it's easier to learn when you've got that. Kind yeah. Of like if I just type the wrong word there, you know, it's going to prompt me with all kinds of like questions. Great. Yeah, this is why I like Eclipse so much. Um, and there's a sample Java application in the workshop files. You can import it in there and play around and actually uh, see how Java gets created. All right, thank you. My site is I'dRatherBeWriting.com. You can get more information, contact me, and um, I appreciate it. <laughs>